Love Talk Radio. Good Saturday morning. Oh, it is absolutely glorious here in Philadelphia. The sun is coming through the window. It's just a beautiful, beautiful day. And I have most of the day to myself after I finish the interview, which is rare. And so I'm really, really happy about that. I want to welcome all of you to Blog Talk. Radios off the shelf, and for those of you tuning in over at Blake Radio, we also air off the shelf over there. Welcome, welcome, welcome for this Saturday, May nineteenth, two thousand and twelve. Can you believe we are headed for summer? Thank you so much for being here with us. As I always tell you, it is an absolute joy. You have no idea how much I enjoy doing this show, being here with you. For those who are loyal listeners who've been with us for going on eight years. Again, thank you. Eight years you've been with us, and I, I truly thank you. For those that might be your first time, you just on the Internet, you're just trying to find something to listen to for a Saturday morning, and you just stop by off the shelf, and it's your first time tuning into the show, I want to introduce myself to you. I'm your host, Denise Turney, coming to you live from the city of brotherly love, and how about them Philadelphia 76ers, coming to you live from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and as always, I thank you, and I thank you so many times because I mean it more than I say it. I thank you for your support, and I encourage you not to let another day pass before you pick up my brand spanking new book, Love Pour Over Me. Here's what you will get when you get a copy of Love Pour Over Me. You will get mystery, love, a complicated yet rewarding relationships and the friendships between the guys in the book, they're going to stay with you. And romance and intrigue, you are not going to want to put this book down. You're going to get so many benefits from reading Love Pour Over Me, and you're going to feel so good when you get to the last page. And you can pick up a copy of Love Pour Over Me today at online retailers anywhere, and I do mean anywhere, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Ingram Digital, iTunes, Google Reader, etc., and you can also start enjoying Love for Over Me by grabbing a copy at my website, www.chistel.com, C-H-I-S-T-E-L-L.com. And while you're there, please check out my other books, which you can get online and offline at bookstores everywhere. And now, to the moment you've been waiting for, let us go and meet our special guest, today's off-the-shelf featured guest. Is Stacy Hawkins Adams? I have heard her name before. Her name is like when they talk about branding. As soon as I hear her name, I'm like, she's somebody I've heard of before. And Stacy is an award-winning author, public speaker, book coach, and columnist. She is also the author of the books "Dreams That Won't Let Go," "The Someday List," "Who Speaks to Your Heart," "Tuning Into God's Whispers." Worth a thousand words, nothing but the right thing, and watercolored pearls. Stacy has also been published in anthologies like This Far by Faith and The Midnight Clear. Her new novel is titled Coming Home. Stacy would love it. She would just love it. If you visited her right now, even as we do this interview, you can listen to her, find out more about her writing process, how she creates her books, and her new book, Coming Home. Even as you listen to this interview, which is one of the benefits of online radio, you you will just get so much out of it if you would click over to her website right now as you tune in to today's interview. And her website is www.stacyhawkinsadams.com, and I'll spell that S-T-A-C-Y. 
H-A-W-K-I-N-S-A-D-A-M-S.com, StacyHawkinsAdams.com. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Stacy. Thank you for having me, Denise. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And and we and I'm so happy to have you here with us on this again. It's just absolutely beautiful here today. And I know that your schedule is full, so I thank you for taking time out of your schedule to help our listeners who love books and love literature and love authors and appreciate what authors do to learn more about you and your writing, your writing process, et cetera. Now, to start, you've written for newspapers like Virginia's Richmond Times-Dispatch. And I wanted to ask you, because we have off-the-shelf listeners. They may be small business owners. They may be avid book readers, writers, publishers, editors from all different walks of life. And some of them would love to be in your your shoes. They would love to be a published author, author or just published, even if it's just in a journal or a newspaper. So I wanted to ask you, being that you have been published in the Richmond Times-Dispatch, did you land your newspaper writing assignments right out of high school, or did you work other jobs after you graduated? Uh, uh, Is that the first job that you had as soon as you graduated, working for the newspaper? Or did you work another job? And if so, can you tell us about some of the other jobs that you worked Okay, well, I actually, I'm one of those lifelong writers, so I actually, I did major in journalism in college, and um, when I was in college, I worked at various newspapers during the summer, so those are like my summer internships, and then my first job out of college was at a newspaper in Melbourne, Florida, called Florida Today. Uh, One of my summer internships had been at USA Today, so um, it was a natural fit for me to start my first job at Florida Today, which is one of the sister papers of of USA Today, and so I was there for about a year, and um, then I landed the job at the Richmond Times Dispatch, and I stayed there on staff for 13 years, but I stayed so long because I, I had an opportunity to do a variety of things from covering courts to covering uh, social issues like families and children and welfare reform, and before I left, I was writing a, a column. And so what you see now from the Times Dispatch, although I left the staff in 2006 as a full-time reporter, I now um, write for them as a freelancer. I write a parenting column twice a month. Wow. So, oh my so my path was sort of the journalism route, but, you know, I would just encourage anyone who has strong writing skills to maybe even start with the smaller community papers in their uh, in their community and just see if they could write for the weekly papers or if there's a monthly paper, maybe start there and build up their, their clips, they're called, and then take those to the larger paper to see if there's a, a way they can begin freelancing there as well. You know, I think you're the first guest in over about eight years for I have a print newsletter, The Book Lovers Having, uh, which is free, and then also off the shelf. You're the, I think you're one of the first that I've interviewed who majored in journalism and worked in journalism for several years. Most other authors, that's not they they work in another field. I th- I find that interesting because you are one of the first and I know that gave you a lot of skills and then you said you still do freelance for the newspaper. Right. I think that's amazing and again it's it's like a an, an so like you're an anomaly. You, for me, the people I've interviewed, yeah. you are one of the first, if not the first, I've heard say that. Before we go on, I also wanted to ask you because I don't know, I didn't give you a heads up on this, but could you, if you can't, that's fine. Before the close of the interview, are you able to read an excerpt from Coming Home? 
Uh, sure, I'll find something while we're chatting, so I'll be ready to read uh, when the All time comes. Right. That'd, that'd be great. But I think you're right. I think I'm, I I knew as a kid that I loved writing, and so I just grew up knowing what I was going to be when I grew up. I knew I was going to be some kind of writer, and at, at eight or nine years old, I decided I wanted to write books. But then as I got older, the reality set in, and I kept reading all these stories about starving artists and starving authors, and I'm like, I don't want to do that, so how can I write? which I love, but still, you know, have a successful career. And that's kind of how I, I found journalism. Wow, you you just, that, I can see the practical, your practical thinking working. And it, and, it, and it seems to have served you so well. Again, so many other people, not just in writing, uh, but interviews I also do for Madam Nor for business interviews. People who will start their own company, they'll often start out in an industry that has nothing to do with the business that, business that they're currently running. But you seem to stay on track. What attracted you to newspaper reporting, and what was it like working as a newspaper reporter? And I ask you that specifically because I've heard stories about editors and their demands and the busy, <laughs> hectic pace of being a newspaper reporter. Did you work on-site in the office full-time, and what was that like for you? It was all of that. It was busy. It was hectic, and you, you asked what attracted me, and I, it really was in middle school or junior high looking at those career guides and just, and knowing that I really loved writing. I was passionate about writing and trying to find a way that I could do that for a career, and so I decided then, okay, it's probably going to be journalism, and so I worked for my high school newspaper, and I was the editor of my college newspaper and all of that, and so once I got into the journalism, I realized that what I what I enjoyed about writing fiction or creative writing was that you know at that point my short stories or my poems I could see it brought joy to people or it made people smile or it made people laugh. So I liked the impact that my writing had, and then once I kind of started writing the journalism pieces, I saw that I had that same impact. But now it was writing since it was nonfiction and it was about true things, it was writing that could change people's lives for the better or it could inform or educate. So I enjoyed that process. So that was what I enjoyed about it. And I actually was a Metro Desk reporter, which means uh, in a newspaper you have different departments, you know, just like in any business. So you have, like, the features department, you have the Metro department, you have the business department. So that's those are the different sections of the newspaper. And in features or in the flair department, you've got longer deadlines, you've got more time to write nice, flowing stories. In business, you know, that usually, you know, shorter stories, maybe once a week you'd have a business section. But on the Metro desk, that's where when news happened, you had to be on site. You had to be there. So I remember on September 11, 2001, that was my first day back at work after having my second child. I wow. had been out for 12 weeks and oh my I, God. I had an interview scheduled, but just believe it or not, at a mosque, at a Muslim mosque that oh. morning. So I go to work, and I, you know, left my baby with the sitter, and I sit at my desk, and a photographer comes flying through the newsroom and oh. turns on the TV, and I see the second plane hit the tower. And I knew then, okay, this is what this day is going to be like. So it was it was hectic, but it was like we felt this responsibility that we are like the eyes and ears of the community in a, in a sense. So, you know, I put my journalism hat on. I went to that mosque. I went in there. I interviewed those Muslim parents and leaders about what they were thinking and feeling about the terror attack, you know, all of that. And so there are lots of stories, like, you know, it's not all if you remember the D.C. sniper stories. I remember mm-hmm. when they came to the Richmond area, working on those stories. So, you know, lots of um, 
moments where you're working and this news happens and you kind of got to be on the front lines of it. But it also gave me an opportunity to um, tell stories in compassionate ways, so I enjoyed that piece of it. Mm-hmm. And then, as I said, the last six years, I wrote a, an inspirational column for the newspaper. So I was able to balance that sort of uh, busy deadline daily reporting with writing more thoughtful pieces about people's journeys of faith, and I really enjoyed that. Wow. I can just imagine, as I'm listening to you, how that being able to crank out those stories helps you today as a novelist. Now, you started out, you knew you wanted to write. Right. You heard about the starving artist, and you said, you know, that ain't what I want to be. So <laughs> you, you you went toward the the journalism track. When did you decide? You're sitting there, you're doing your journalism stories, you're earning, earning your income, and, and the, just for some reason, something maybe shifts, and you say, you know what, I want to write novels. When did you decide that you wanted to write novels, and was there a single event that inspired you to take up novel writing? Well, uh, there were. I think there were like a series of events. I was When I was in my late 20s, um, it was probably after I'd had my first child, and she was probably maybe nine or ten months old, and I kind of started getting that yearning again. And at this point, I had probably been a journalist, uh, like a professional, you know, newspaper reporter for about five or six years. So I was feeling like, wow, I really want to write those books that I said I was going to write someday. You know, that that yearning kind of came back. But um, so I would do like most writers do. You know, you write a couple of pages and then you put it down and you come back to it two months later. You're like, I'm going to try to write it again. So I kind of went through that process off and on for about three years of writing a little bit and then I would forget about it or writing a little bit and I would get distracted. And so um, after I had my son, you know, after this, you know, the 9 11 thing and all that, after I had him, I just remember when he was probably about nine months old and I had been working on the book off and on, like I said, for about three years. But, you know, something, and for me, I feel like it was the spirit of God. Woke me up like at 3 a.m. in the morning, and this thought just came over me. You know, you, you don't want to be 85 years old encouraging your grandchildren and great-grandchildren to live their dreams, and you haven't lived yours. Wow. You know, you're going to someday try to encourage those children to do that. You need to be able to say you at least tried. And that's wow. like just me to my core. I mean, literally. And so literally the next day, I set my alarm clock because I was still working full-time at the newspaper, and I decided I was going to get up and write from, like, 4 until 5.30 or 4 to 6 before I had to go to my full-time job at least twice a week. And so that really motivated me. And so when I when I had that experience, it took me maybe six or eight weeks to finish a draft of the book. And, of course, it didn't get published right away. I had to rewrite it a few times. But that was sort of my motivation. Like, you know, when I finished write, rewriting it the third time, you know, I had sent it out to some publishers. I had sent it to, like, this one publisher, and I thought it was going to happen, and it didn't. And, you know, she didn't like the first version. The second version was okay. The third one still didn't float her boat. So I just put it on the shelf. I was like, I did my part. You know, I wrote it. <laughs> I did it. And, you know, I, like, challenged that. I was like, okay, this is supposed to happen. You just let me know when. It's on the shelf. I'm watching HGTV. I'm sacrificing my walls. <laughs> But so yeah, that was really what spurred me because I just kind of had that moment where I keep talking about it. I did, I need to do this, and I you know I I am a big encourager. I just I love encouraging people, writing or otherwise. And I just saw myself someday having that conversation, and I didn't want them to say, "Well, what do you want to be one day?" And I could have would have to say, "Well, I always wanted to write books, but I never got around to it." I didn't want wow. that to be my answer. Wow! 
you know, and that's the God within that woke you up at three in the morning saying, Hey, 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 get back get on get on track, get going. That is yeah. something. That is something. And sometimes it's not until we're in our, later in our years although I think people do know along the way, but we talk ourselves out of going out going oh, after yeah. and you and you and fortunately you didn't. Who championed your growth as a writer and you said you you wrote your book and then you submitted it and it wasn't accepted. Who championed your growth as a writer and what impact did that person have on you to say, okay, you tried and it didn't turn out the way you wanted it. Now get back up there and swing that bat again. Um, I, I think a lot of that part of it, the get back up piece, probably came from within because I, I'm not a quitter. I, I'm pretty tenacious. Um, but I also do have a, a great group of like what I call my writer friends. So I had one friend um, who worked with me at the newspaper. Her name is Robin, and she knew I'd been working on this book. And she sent me this really mean email, which actually was <laughs> reverse. It was like reverse psychology help. She was like, you know what? I know you're not going to finish this book. Ten years from now, you're going to be sitting at your desk at the newspaper still talking about that book you want to write. And I was like, how dare she? And then I thought about it. I was like, I'm pinning this up on my wall in front of my computer because that's my challenge to not be sitting at the desk ten years from now still talking about this book I wanted to write. And then also, once I finish, like, the first draft, I have a couple of writer friends who I knew would be very honest with me. Because my advice to writers is don't give the book to your mother or your sister or your best friend. Yeah, they're going to be like, oh, it's so great. You know, you mm-hmm. want the person who's going to say, well, that doesn't make sense, or why would the character do that, or that's boring. And so I picked um, three friends to read it who I knew would be honest with me or question my character's motivations, the things that would make me make it a better book. And I actually still use those folks today to help me read through the book for the first time. And so um, that's always just been helpful to have those people who, two of them mm-hmm. are actually successful writers, and one is just a friend who loves to read. So since she reads so many books, she's a very critical reader. And I knew that she would bring that same kind of lens to my work. So that helps me, I think, grow as a writer, but also helps me understand that I need to write it in a way that the reader can get the meaning I'm trying to convey. Yeah, and working with a good editor. I think having, I think, I think working with a good editor and with other people like you yourself do, because and even as good as the editor is, they might miss something. So if you have right. a, a several people reading through your work, uh, I, I find that 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 can be that can be helpful. But at some point, you have to have confidence as a writer too, to to know when. As my editor said says, if you take every suggestion I make and just do it, then I question you as a your skills as a writer. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You, you, Mm-hmm. You have to you have to stand behind what you know is right in your story. So, how long were you writing books, Stacy, before you landed your first contract? And what was the process of landing your first contract like? And can you give us the year because so much has changed in the book publishing industry, particularly with the internet and eBooks and and you know you just have so many digital formats to 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 uh, get products not only books but music and movies out to consumers so if you could tell us the year you landed your first book co- contract and how long you had been writing novels before you landed your contract and what that process of getting the contract was like Sure, and I think that's also an anomaly. I think my journey was probably easier than most, so sometimes I don't tell the story because I think it makes people despair. <laughs> but um, I landed my first, well, let's say, remember how I talked about writing the book. 
also, I wrote three versions of it, mm-hmm. and I had actually had gone to a writer's conference. So my key piece of information or advice to aspiring writers is to get to a reputable writer's conference because not only are you going to network with other published writers and aspiring writers, but you get to meet editors and agents. So I guess it was 2002, I had gone to a writer's conference, and I had my five little chapters and thought I had done something, and I, I met this New York agent there, and she read the five chapters and liked it, but she didn't represent African-American literature. So she referred me, and mine was kind of, mine was like, uh, it had faith-based overtones, you know, inspirational African-American literature. So she referred me to another agent slash publisher, which was an excellent thing to happen because, you know, instead of me, instead of her just saying, check out these three agents, and I kind of write them letters on my own and hope they respond, I was able to contact this other agent and say, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, Jane Doe, suggested that I give you, you know, contact you about this book because she appreciated it. And so me using, being able to use this woman's name opened the door. And so this um, editor slash publisher, because she was kind of publishing some things on her own, but she was an agent. Um, she read the first five chapters and thought they were promising. And that's what spurred me to finish the first draft after I've had this conversation with myself and God. And so she read the first three versions, and I just said, oh, this is going to be my publisher. But after I wrote the book for the third time, and she was still like, oh, I'm not feeling it, that would have been uh, like late 2002. And that's when I put it on the shelf and said, okay, it's done. I'm moving on. Let me just go on to whatever else. I'm enjoying my newspaper job. I like writing my column. And in 2000, February of 2003, I got a phone call out of the blue from wow. uh, an editor with, he was an acquisitions editor with Baker Publishing Group. And because I was a journalist, I had written this newspaper column about a woman in Richmond who was doing something unique out of her home. Well, that story had got got picked up by a national magazine. So he read about this woman in the national magazine, mm-hmm. actually wanted her to write a book about her journey. And so when he called her, she said, he said, I need a book proposal from you. And she said, I don't know how to write a book proposal. And he said, well, do you know any writers? And she said, I know Stacy. She wrote the first article about me. And so that's why he called me, because he wanted me to help her write her book proposal. But mm-hmm. he also said, you know, what else do you write? What other projects do you have? And so I said, well, I've got this, this novel on the shelf, but it's not any good. But, you know, I write a newspaper column. How about we do a book around my column, you know? And we were headed down that path. But he kept asking me about this novel. He kept saying, didn't you tell me you had a novel? Like, yeah, it's not ready. So the third time he asked me, I said, you know what, it's not ready, but I'm going to send it to you. So I put a little sarcastic note on it. Here's the manuscript. I know it's not up to par, but you keep asking for it. And a month later, he called. I know, wasn't that, like, really gold? I lost my mind, I think. When I look back now, I'm like, what was wrong with me? I don't know who was in my Kool-Aid. But um, he called a month later and said, we really like this book, and we're looking to publish African-American fiction. So I actually wound up being their first African-American fiction publisher under the, the their Fleming H. Revelle, um brand, which was part of the Baker Publishing Group. So that first book came out. We, uh, we signed the deal in 2003, and my first novel was published in October of 2004. So that, to me, is still almost an easy path because he kind of found me through my journalism. But I do think, you know, since then I've, I've taught at many writers' conferences around the country, and I do see the value of people going there, and that's a good way to connect with these agents and publishers and to land a book deal. You, you, and I thank you for what you're sharing, but you, that, I, we had another author on the show who that's how, they got, then they got a contract on site at a Yeah. 
on site. Right. So, so you know, and I've got early in my career, I went to a lot of writers' conferences. I don't so much today, but for new writers, I highly recommend going to writers' conferences. It doesn't mean everybody's going to land a deal, but if you get an opportunity, because all conferences don't do that, do this. But if you do get an opportunity to meet and speak with publishers and editors and literary agents, I highly recommend taking advantage and, and presenting your best work. To them, exactly. your absolutely, your absolute best work to them. That's so funny because that's how I, your story is similar to how I got my own radio show. I actually oh, cool. c- c- connected with a um, a radio station owner and asked to schedule an interview so I could discuss my book Portia. And he said, "Why don't you just start your own show?" And I mean, that's wow. all that never ever. Isn't it funny how things connect? I was listening <laughs> to you tell your story. When you look back, like Steve Jobs said, when we look back over our lives, we can see why something happened. But when we're going forward, we're like scratching our heads saying, why is this happening? And sometimes when the the Spirit's saying put on the accelerator, we're putting on the brakes saying, no, no, no. And we don't know that it's going to something good. You know, so that's that's why trust is so important. Right, right. If you could give our off-the-shelf listeners the title, and a brief synopsis of your first book, because I want to start diving into your books now. Oh, okay. You know, my first, very first book was called Speak to My Heart, and it was part of a three-book series. And that very first book uh, dealt with a young lady named Serena Jacobs, who was in her early 20s and found out that the man on her birth certificate who had died when she was eight months old um, was actually not her father. It was one of the deacons in church. <laughs> And so that threw her into this tailspin of kind of like, like, what's up with these church people? She looked at her mother differently. She became estranged from her mother for about five years. But really she had to understand how to love people unconditionally, including herself, you know, despite your flaws. And it was also a book that I wrote um, because I, I because I was at the, at the same time I wrote that book and when it came out I was still writing my newspaper column in, in uh, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, my faith-based column. And what I was hearing from readers in the column was, I'm Jewish, but I pick up your column every day. Or I'm an atheist, but I pick up this column every Saturday because uh. something about it is speaking to my spirit. And so I, I decided that when, even though I was writing faith-based fiction, I wanted to speak to people who were struggling with faith, who were struggling with hypocritical, so-called hypocritical Christians, who felt like they were angry at God or they wanted to question God or that kind of thing because I think so many people are in that place. It's not always this happy-go-lucky relationship of faith. And mm-hmm. so I... Part of what I do as a writer is helping most people understand that God's love is unconditional and his grace is extended to everyone as long as you're open to receiving it. And so that's what I was trying to do with Serena's character because she had grown up in the church and she literally, she actually shut down on her mother and God. She tried to push God away for five years. And every time she would do that, he would kind of speak to her in different ways and she would still try to push him away. But when she finally woke up out of her thought, both her mother was there for her still and God's love was still there. And so that's what that first book was about, how God was always speaking in her heart, even when she was running from it. Yeah, you know what, I'm, and I'm told that the Spirit always speaks, but we don't always listen. Because exactly. the, ego, the ego is so loud that that's why people sometimes say meditation is good. You have to quiet the mind and trust. Yeah. So you can hear from Spirit. Now, at your website, again, for our off-the-shelf listeners, your, uh, Stacy's website is stacyhawkinsadams.com, S-T-A-C-Y-H-A-W-K-I-N-S-A-D-A-M-S.com, stacyhawkinsadams.com. At your website, when discussing your new book, Coming Home, you begin by saying, 
If you forgive your ex, if forgiving your ex-husband was easy, everybody would do it. Why did you decide to tackle a relationship with a former spouse and coming home? You know, it actually just kind of happened. I know that sounds odd, but you're a writer, so maybe you understand how your characters take over. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It actually, when I started writing this book, it was actually going to be about the main character being the other woman, and she was going to be trying to figure out how to find happiness without having to search for it outside of a relationship. But the longer, the more I wrote into the book, I wanted it to not be about the character looking so much for the happiness outside of herself, but coming to pieces who she was and coming to terms with the things that had kind of broken her in life. And so the best way for me to do that was to have her be the broken woman, have her to be the wife who was injured. And now you're the injured woman who's got to forgive his ex-husband. But, wow, what if he shows up and says, I really want you to forgive me and help me to end my journey in a positive way. That takes a whole another level of forgiveness. Yeah. So I wanted it to be about this woman who really pushed past the limits, pushed past what, she, past what she thought she had to give. And in the process, she does grow and she forgives herself, she forgives the ex-spouse, and, and, and also the, the woman who became the new wife, which is, you know, she was once the mistress and also once her friend. Wow, that put me in mind of um, Tyler Perry's "Why Did I Get Married?" and the second, the second one where, uh, oh, what's her name? Oh yeah, Bill Scott's character. Bill yeah. Scott's character. Yeah. That when you was talking about that, that just popped up. Can you describe Brent and Dana briefly for us? Tell us how long they were married and what was their marriage like. Okay, well, Brent and Dana, Dana's the main character. Brent is the former husband. They were actually college sweethearts, and he was a football star at their fictional Alabama college town. And she was like the sweet girlfriend, you know, nursing student who stood by his side when he was injured in football. But he still was sort of like, the you know, the, the sports hero, even after he couldn't play anymore. And so they got married and settled in that same town where her father was a prominent minister, and they were married for seven years. And around that seven-year mark, um, he just kind of, you know, took an opportunity to step outside of their marriage and so he had been faithful up until that point he had been faithful up until that point <sighs> so at around that time you know they were think they were talking about starting a family and you know she thought things were going well and then out of the blue he kind of starts changing and around that time Tamara a new young lady had moved to their neighborhood and you know she was staying with a friend of theirs and looking for a job and so um, Dana actually helped her to get a job. I'm giving away parts of the book, but Dana helped her to get a <laughs> yeah, job. Yeah, don't give it all away. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, yeah, so she was, yeah, so some things happened when Tamara moved to town, and Tamara wow. set her sights on Brent and went after him, and it worked. Wow. So after seven years, he just decided, you know, isn't that something? Because I would think most people who are unfaithful, and I guess I'm thinking of a serial, somebody who cheats over and over, they usually do it right off the bat. It's no like they don't waste no time. They get married. They want to. They want to. I don't spouse. even know that. See, I'm sheltered. I guess I don't know. Yeah, you don't know. They don't need a character like that. Yeah, they want a spouse because they want. I think a lot of times married people are highly respected, and I've heard men uh-huh. say they they want a wife who pe- other people respect. So cause it really, makes the, yeah, it makes the man feel good about himself. Like, look, I I got her. I got her. But then they also still fool around. Are Brent and Dana at the start of the book, are they still married? Are they single? Are they remarried? They've been divorced for seven years when the book opens. So they were married seven years, and they've been divorced for seven years when the book opens. And Dana's trying to move on with her life, and Brent shows up out of the blue, and he's been married to Tamara at that point for about five or six years. Okay. 
Okay. Have you yourself, because I know as an author, we often pull, and generally subconsciously, we often pull from our own life experiences or something we've observed when we to get the material for our work. Have you ever had to allow someone who hurt you, it doesn't have to be a romantic relationship, but somebody who hurt you, have you ever had to allow them back into your life? And if so, how did you handle it? That's a great question because normally the question I get is, is this your story? And I say, no, this is fiction. <laughs> this fiction is not about anybody I know. Uh, but in terms of what you're asking, I have not had to do it to the level that this character has done. You know, like when you're like, oh, my gosh, I've, I've let this person back in. But I think probably the theme of forgiveness as I was writing the book, I thought, wow, this is a theme, this is a message that, yeah, I can, I'm can. i growing from myself as I'm writing about it because I think we all like you said, whatever the scenario, we all grapple with issues around how do we forgive other people, how do we forgive ourselves, that kind of thing. But I don't think I've even done it at this point to the extent that my character did in that book because it took a whole lot for her, I feel like, to decide she was going to just, you know, go back into his life and help him with what he was asking. So I haven't had that, I guess, experience yet to that level. Even when you were describing it, I was thinking, wow, I was sitting there saying, could I do that? I was sitting there thinking to myself. Me too. <laughs> you know, could I actually do something like that? Because we, we think we got this forgiveness thing down pat. But then when you describe what the story, what happens in coming home, you're like, hmm, could I do that? Not so right. sure. One, one you know, the like, interesting thing is, and I'm sorry before we go on, I've had people who read the book who come up to me and say, oh, I have a friend who did something similar to that. Wow. So I've heard of people who actually have, like, taken care of a former spouse who, was dying or something like wow. that. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. Now, one one reviewer had this to say about coming home. Stacy Hawkins Adams' story presents situations that are not uncommon but often shoved into shadows in order to keep up appearances. It is a work that is impactful, provocative, and entertaining. Stacy has written a work that reminds us that forgiveness is a tool with the power to unlock one's destiny. Uh, do you think, Stacy? That we can harbor a lack of unforgiveness, of your yeah, unforgiveness, and not even know it. Oh yeah, yeah, to- totally. Because I mean, now that I probably have seen in people, you know, and I think we all see that. We see it in the angry person. That why has that person been angry for twenty years? Or we see it in the person who's bitter, or the person who closes off the world. You know, I, so I, I do think that that's possible. And I even think in that first chapter, Dana feels like she's ready to move on in her life. She feels like she has forgiven Brent, but when he shows up at her door asking something extraordinary of her, that's when she realizes, wow, I'm I'm not as far down the path as I thought I was. So for our listeners who might be sitting back themselves saying, hmm, as they listen to you talk more and more about coming home, I wonder if I'm dealing with that. So some signs, and everybody's different, could be just anger, or every time somebody comes around, you just get so bothered. Or, you mean, or even just resentment. I, I can say that in my life, in the past, there have been times when I've just been resentful of a person for, I mean, any little thing they do, just it adds to the resentment that was already there. And then at one point I had to step back and say, okay, either I'm going to always be resentful of this person because they tied their shoe the wrong way or because they did, they smiled the wrong way. And what, what is that about? What is the foundation of that? And then when you can step back and say, Everything this person does is ticking me off, and why? And then mm. you have to look deep and say, 
I need to forgive this person from whatever it was 20 years ago. So now the little stuff they're doing today doesn't bother me. Wow. So I think you know, just kind of looking at what what is driving you and your emotions around other people, and that can kind of maybe help you pinpoint it. Yeah, and you know, and it's important because we're all, I believe we're all connected. So each person, as each of us gets it right, it benefits everybody. I, I, I truly, truly believe that a lot of times we can get to where we think all I got to do is take care of me, forget the rest right. of y'all. But I, I just think we're connected. I don't think it works that way. So as as we each work work on, or really the spirit's got to do it, and we obey, it benefits everybody. I, I, I just truly believe that. It benefits everybody. But forget, unforgiveness is a big one. It not only I don't for, think it's easy. I don't think it's easy. Like a, a woman came up to me uh, a few weeks ago and she said, you know, she has a former husband and she can't forgive him. And I asked her, how is it serving you not to forgive him? How, how right. is that serving? What, what is that doing for you? And she had to stop and think about it because all it was doing was keeping her in not. So, you know, there's this whole cliche about when you forgive, you're not really freeing the other person. You're really freeing yourself. Yeah, you 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 are, but it 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 can be it can be tough. Self forgiveness and forgiving others. I think the fact that you took that on, because I think it's a key to a lot of the 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 entanglements. I mean, from wars on down. Right. The the root of it is unforgiveness. I, I don't care. The root of it is unforgiveness. That's a big 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 uh, life. What you took on with uh, the unforgiveness. I mean, that's something you could go on and on and about with in so many different angles. You just you took it from like a romantic angle, uh, a, a couple that, uh, that had a f- former intimate relationship. But there's so many ways. Oh my God, it, it's got to be billions of people wrestling with that. Even as right. we speak, how, how long did it take you to write Coming Home? And what was what's the process that you use? To create your books, for instance, do you work with an outline or a character sketch? And then after this question, I just want to give you a heads up. I was going to ask you if you could read an excerpt from Coming Home, but first, how long okay. did it take? How long did it take you to write Coming Home? And what what's what's your process? What process do you use to create your stories? Okay, well, because I am a deadline oriented writer, because of my journalism days, I can write a book in about six months. You know, or if I'm pushed for. <laughs> Okay. Um, but 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 that's the actual writing part because really what's going on in my head for another three months before I even sit down is I am I'm wrestling with who the characters are and I'm letting those ideas kind of simmer. So I'll start out with I'll write like a synopsis of what the story and what the plot is that kind of thing and that's what I'll share with my editors. And then I have a very loose idea of who I think my characters are. And so that's what I'm kind of like letting marinate. I'm thinking about it. I'm tossing around. What is this? And what is that? Or I'll be out you know, at a meeting and I hear a name or I'll hear the, like, for example, yesterday um, I was at a, a meeting and we were talking about this particular health issue and how it's not, like, really treated like a health issue because people who have it, they don't have uh, medical coverage. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm putting that in the book. I can have a character deal with it. So then, because I'm writing my next book, so then when I got home, I started thinking, well, who's going to be the best character? And I'm like, wow, it would be perfect if this character has it because then that would explain this character acting that way. So oh, okay. I do a lot of that in my head before I even sit down. But then when I'm really ready to write, I will sit down and do a character sketch. And so by that, I mean it's not a big formal thing. I'll get a piece of paper, and at the top of it, I'll write the character's name. And I'll say um, third or fourth children, which makes that person a middle child, um, very outgoing, 
um, likes chocolate, um, uh, adores the baby brother in the family, has always secretly liked X, Y, Z, um, does well in school. I'm kind of like trying to create who this person is and maybe some things that have happened to that person. Mm -hmm. So when I'm writing, I talk a lot about what motivates the character. Because if you think about a character like um, Dana, let's say Dana, my main character in Coming Home, Mm -hmm. what drove her to... Go back into the ex-husband's life and help him. What, what, what in her background has led her to that? Right. I don't think any of us act in a vacuum, so it's always good to understand. So, like the book I'm writing now, one of the characters is a minister named Randy. Well, what drove him to the ministry? Why did he marry Shiloh? So I kind of mm. my little background sketch on. Well, he was her father's favorite, you know, minister son, and and the father kind of arranged the marriage, and Shiloh was a people pleaser, so she went along with what was arranged, and so now that explains to you why they treat each other the way they do in their marriage, because it wasn't a passionate, we fell in love thing, they were both trying to please the dad, that kind of thing, so that's really good to have that background on your character as you're kind of trying to craft your story, because it helps move the story forward. No, and I agree with that completely because, again, the, the 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 reader has to believe the character had enough motivation to do right. what they were doing. It has to be realistic. Even if you write sci-fi, it still has to, as it, far out as it, the story might be, the characters, their motivations and whatever, it has to be believable to the reader. Are you ready? Can you read us an excerpt from Coming Home? I Stacey? am. I am. I was trying to find a good one, so I'll kind of set it up a little bit because it's a fairly long chapter, and then I'll kind of summarize some of it. Okay. But it's actually chapter 39, and so, as I said, Dana is the main character, and Brent is her former husband who uh, has been diagnosed with a terminal illness. So that is why she is agreeing to help him accomplish a goal before he dies. Okay. Brent is married to Tamara who was once his girlfriend that he cheated with, but now she's his wife. And also in the story is Dana's boyfriend, Warren. So Warren is not happy that Dana's trying to help Brent before he dies, yeah. he's going along with it. So in Chapter 39, what happens is Tamara calls Dana and says, you need to come now because Brent is asking for you. He's in the hospital and he's asking for you. So that's where I'm going to pick up on page okay. 188. Um, he's asking for you, Dana, Tamara said. Dana gasped. Me? But why? I'm I'm on my way, Tamara. I'll get there as quickly as I can. Dana crossed the street at the crosswalk, but instead of heading into the hospital as she had planned, she made a beeline for the parking deck. She called her secretary, Monica, while she strode toward her car. I need you to let Spencer know I won't be in the afternoon meeting because of a family emergency. And can you please reschedule two telephone conferences I have planned for later in the day? Dana unlocked her door with the keyless entry device and paused before climbing in. How was she going to tell Warren if she was rushing to Brent's bedside? There was no good way, but texting might be easier. She sends a text. Tamara said Brent's not doing well. He's at Holmes Regional Medical Center in Melbourne. Need to go check on him. Not sure when I'll be back, but we'll call. Love you. Dana heard a swoosh indicating his swift reply as she pulled out of the parking deck onto the main road in front of the hospital. The sunlight temporarily blinded her and kept her from reading the text. She laid the phone in the passenger seat and focused on the road, intending to read the message whenever she stopped at a red light. The phone rang. What's this about going to see Brent? Dana heard Warren straining to remain calm. I don't have all the details, Warren, she said, and turned into Second Avenue, which would lead her onto the interstate. Tamara was upset, so I didn't ask any questions. She asked me to come, so I'm on my way. Dana didn't know how to tell him that Brent had specifically asked for her. Okay, he said. 
keep me posted and drive carefully. What? 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 Come on, Lauren, Dana said. What was the drawn out okay for? Nothing, babe, he said. You just get where you're going and call me as soon as you can. I will, Lauren. Love you. She cranked up her Kirk Loewen CD and tried to lose herself in the music. The soothing melodies calmed her pounding heart. And when Dancing on the Shore, a duet with Jonathan Butler came on, she swayed to the lighthearted beat and felt her spirits rise, despite her concern over what was awaiting her at the hospital. The lengthy drive gave her time to ruminate over why she had been summoned. Why had Brent asked for her? And how had that made Tamara feel? Was this the end? Her thoughts wandered to the special time she had shared with Brent, and for once she didn't fight the memories. Dana recalled meeting Brent in the campus student union her freshman year after she asked to borrow his pen to jot down another student's number. Brent had given her the pen, then asked for it back so he could write his number on the same piece of paper as the other guys. Her mind raced through memories of nursing him back to health after his football injury, of his proposal on Christmas Eve, a year after she graduated, and of their fairytale wedding officiated by her father. She recalled the alarm she felt the first time in their seven-year marriage he had stayed out all night without calling and the lame excuse he'd given her when he had come home just before noon the next day. Ignore that, Mama had advised. He's a man, and men are going to do what they want to do. In the end, they know where home is, and they always come home. You just go on about your business and make sure that home is still a clean, warm, and loving place to come home to. Dana shook her head now at the memory of that motherly advice. Mama was something else. Her stomach turned as she remembered the day Brent told her he was in love with Tamara and that their marriage was over. Mm. After she jumped up off the floor, she crawled to a phone and called Mama, who accused her of pushing Brent away. Their mother-daughter relationship had never been the same. Mm. The song on the car stereo changed, and a new melody jarred Dana back to the present. She felt a wetness on her cheeks and was startled to find that she had been crying. Before she could react, her cell phone rang with another familiar tone. It was Audrey, her friend. So I'll stop there. So Audrey, her friend, was calling her as she was driving to, to Brent's bedside. But that was a chance for her to finally kind of reminisce on where she had been with Brent and what it led to this current scenario where now she's being called to his bedside. Wow. You know, I, I thank you so much. I enjoyed that. And it does give... the. the 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 backstory. Not only yeah. do you tell a little bit about the struggle she must have to do this, but also even her mother. So now we know a little bit about even her development because her mother's like all men cheat, so just put up with it. Just exactly. put up with it. Keep keep a good home so he's happy. He can treat you any kind. I don't know where that mindset and human beings even came from. I, I, I to this day I don't know where that came from, but people still will, I I can't even explain it. Where did that Where did that mindset even come from? That okay, a guy he if he's a good guy, he'll treat you right. If he doesn't, you got to be a good wife. Put up with whatever he gives you, and just give him a good home, raise his kids. Now you can't be treat him bad because that'll really make you awful. But if he yes. does it, if he if he does it. It's okay because he's a man. I, I tell you, I don't know where that mindset came from. <laughs> I don't either. You know, when I talked. I was talking to a book club about this about a week or so ago. We were like, is it a generational thing? I don't you know, know, is it a southern thing? I mean, and I don't think it's a southern thing per se. But I mean, this book, this character is about a southern family. But um, we were we were wrestling with that too because that is definitely a prevalent mindset. And I think it is in the, in the older generation. I think it was more prevalent than now. 
but that's definitely a mindset that's out there. Yeah, I think it's, I think it might come back, go back to my grandmother. I was telling her marriages years ago. She's 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 crossed over, but I was telling her marriages years ago were better. She said no, they weren't. Women couldn't get jobs the way they could today. Mm-hmm. Women were Very scared true. to strike out on their own. She said, trust me, women put up with stuff that would blow your mind. And I they agree. Just, they just looked happy. She said, no, it wasn't any better. It wasn't. Women were afraid to strike out on their own because they weren't hiring women then like they do today. Uh, can can you tell us about your book, Dreams That Won't Let Go, as we come down to like the last 10, 10, 12 minutes of today's show. Can you tell us about Dreams That Won't Let Go? I love that title. What's the book about and when did it market? Okay, that is actually the third book in my Jubilant Soul series, but all of those books are written a standalone title. So if you started with dreams, you, you won't be lost. And um, Jubilant, the reason it's called the Jubilant Soul series is because a series is set in a fictional town called Jubilant, Texas. And in each of those standalone stories in the or books in the series, um, there's a character who comes back to Jubilant because they feel like if they come back to Jubilant, everything's going to fall into place in their life. So it's a metaphor for happiness. And, you know, we, we always think we can find it outside of ourselves and the home, the, the spouse, uh, the career. And each of these characters, they come back to Jubilant, Texas, and they have this realization, you know what, the answer is really within me. So this book is actually about uh, siblings. It's about Reuben and about his sister Indigo. And um, it's almost a prodigal son story because um, the, the two siblings, and they have another sister, a younger sister, Yasmin, who's 18. Yasmin wants to be a model, but their grandparents have raised all three of them. And the grandparents are like, we're not letting you go off to New York and Paris. We're just not going to lose you in that way. So they actually are holding her back from her dream. But Reuben, has, he left the family 10 years ago to go out to Seattle and work for Amazon and never came home. And no one ever knew why. But then out of the blue, he decides he's moving back to Jubilant. And so most of the family is so happy that he's coming back, they're afraid to ask why. They're like, we don't want to make him mad. We're just happy that he's coming back. But Indigo is resentful because she's planning her wedding and all of that's getting overshadowed because her brother's back and nobody's caring about what her needs are at this point. And she is angry at him. But, again, you have to look at the backstory. You have to look at the motivation. So what readers end up finding out, because when you read the book, you feel like Indigo is a brat. And you're like, she is 26 years old. She is too old to be acting like this. Well, the reason she's so angry is she really has put up a, a, a barrier because she's like, when you left me 10 years ago when I was 16, I needed you, and you went off to college, and you never came back, and I needed you to be my big brother because their parents had died. And so what people don't understand is that Reuben is coming back because he's been having these nightmares and these panic attacks about what happened around the parents' death, and he feels like if he can come back to Jubilant before his parents died, before his mom died, she made him promise that he would take care of his younger sister, and he didn't keep that promise because he left uh. So he feels like if he comes back and he keeps his promise, his panic attacks are going to go away. But you know what? Life never works out that easy. But they all kind of realize that they've got to love each other unconditionally. And you know what? You may not believe in my dream or understand it, but you have to love me enough to support me where I am. And that's what yes. it's about. Yes, yes, yes. So people don't have to live by our scripts. Just, right, just right. to love a person, even if they do something to make a decision that we hate. Love that love is not about that. It, right. it, it isn't. It's just you love the person what they authentically are like. That that that's that's love. You've also written nonfiction books like Who Speaks to Your Heart, 
tuning into God's whispers, and it does sound like those are whispers. <laughs> is it e- <laughs> Sometimes it's like, hey, are you talking to me? Is, uh-huh. it e- is it easy for you to switch? Okay, because you've done newspaper writing, and with those fast deadlines, you now have a column, and you've done fiction and, 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 and book form. You've done fiction and nonfiction. Is it right. easy? Do you find it easy to switch from writing fiction to nonfiction? Um, I, in a sense, I do, just because I'm trained to do it. But I will tell you what I always put on my Facebook page and my Twitter page, and I'm going into my writer's cave when I have to write, because, like, this is one of my writer's cave weekends. And when I say that, what I mean is in order for me to write what I hope is good fiction, I really have to immerse myself in that fictional world. So although I can, like, last night I did, yesterday I did an interview for my next parenting column. And so before I went to bed last night, I kind of just loosely sketched out what that column is going to be. So that's my nonfiction. But then today I'm not touching any of my nonfiction work because I'm living in Milwaukee where my characters are set. Wow. And I'm on Jade and Shiloh and Randy, and I'm, I'm picturing them and I'm in their world. So I kind of try to escape from my email and reality and all of that so I can then kind of dwell in this fictional world and it makes those characters real for me for whatever those hours are, that weekend or whatever that I'm working on the fiction. Wow. What are, what are some of the topics and uh, listening to God strategies that you cover and who speaks to your heart tuning in to hear God's whispers? Okay, yeah, that's the nonfiction book. And the funny thing is when they, when they hired me, when Zondervan hired me to – write that book, they said, oh, we want a 30-day devotional to help busy women slow down and understand how to hear from God. I'm like, okay, I can do a devotional. And then they they script, uh, flipped the script on me halfway through the process and said, no, we want you to write a full-length book about how women can hear from God. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, who made me the expert on that? So it, it's almost like a, a memoir because I actually talk about my personal journey of faith and how over the years I've grown from not being able to slow down and hear from God to now I really uh, crave that quiet time with God. And I think one of the tips is to understand that he is not always going to be this booming voice. It's not always going to be that 3 a.m. wake-up call that I got. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's going to be a word that the person next to you speaks, not even knowing what's going on in your life. And mm-hmm. they say something to you that you needed to hear, and you're like, wow, that's sometimes the voice of God. Sometimes you're reading something, and that's the mm-hmm. voice of God. Sometimes a song will come on the radio that will speak to your spirit. So I think you have to just be in tune to knowing that you're seeking these answers. And I think you said it earlier, you've got to just be quiet. Sometimes I'll just ride in my car, and I say that in the book. I'll ride in the car, I won't have the radio on. It'll just be me, and I'm just driving down the road, just thinking, and then it'll just, the answer will drop into my spirit. So, but you have to also have the courage to whatever that answer is to then say, "Wow, I get it now, and now how am I going to act on it?" So it's almost having the courage to listen, and then also having the courage to respond in the way that you've been told to respond after you hear. And you also have to want to, because I, I know there are times I thought, "Well, I think that is." source or spirit and then I thought but I don't want to do that so you exactly yeah we got that ego wrestling so you have to you also have to be willing to you know we wanted to go our way man if our way really worked we wouldn't be in the situation (laughs) (laughs) which is proof that our way doesn't work that's so true if our way worked we would be just a-okay you also do public speaking what types of sp- public speaking do you do 
uh, do you do motivational, instructional, like when you're teaching? What type of public speaking that you do? And if anybody wanted to contact you to schedule you for a public speaking event, how could they do so? Uh, well, I guess I'll answer the second question first. They can go to my website, which you've given them, StacyHawkinsAdams.com, and there is a tab on there for speaking engagements. And when they go there, they'll see that I do both faith-based and sort of civic corporate speaking engagements. Um, so I kind of tailor my message to whatever um, the person needs. So I, my mission as a writer and a speaker is kind of the same. It's to enlighten, which is to educate, to uplift that whole motivation, and to inspire, which is to hopefully move you to action and whatever your purpose or your goal is. So I can do that in any arena. So uh, if it's a faith-based message, certainly I'm tailoring it around messages of faith or around scriptures, but um, uh, last month I spoke to the Virginia State Reading Association, and I inspired reading teachers about what they do around literacy. I've spoken at a, a Verizon corporate event before, so it really just kind of depends on the needs, and of course I do writing uh, instruction at a local university, and I've taught at writers' conferences, so I also you know, do it around whatever the needs of a writer are as well. Wow, you you have a full plate, lady. I, <laughs> You know, I so many people I know, what was it? I forget who said this. If you want to get something done, give it to a busy person. People <laughs> who are busy and whose schedules are packed, they still can find ways to get one more thing done. It's, 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 and there's another saying, a body in motion stays in motion. So it's almost like a couch potato type person who... They never have time to do anything. They just can't. They don't have the energy. They don't have the time, and they don't do anything all day. If you want to get something done, give it to somebody whose schedule is packed, <laughs> and they will find a way to get it done. Yeah, we figure out how to prioritize. Yes. I think that's my my key. I prioritize, and you know, I, and I do say no to a lot of things, believe it or not. But I think also what happens is when you're passionate about something, it doesn't feel like work. Yeah. And that drives you, and it yeah. keeps you energized when you're doing I, something I, I, Yeah, that resonated with me for some reason when you said that. I think I think you're right. How can a, we only have a little over two minutes left? How can off-the-shelf listeners get copies of your new book, Coming Home? And is is the book also available in print and ebook? Yes, it's available in print and ebook, so they can download it on their ebook device. It is sold nationwide, so any bookstore they frequent, they can go in. If it's not on the shelves, have them to order it. Um, definitely Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, all of those sites. So, and they can read an excerpt on the books page of my website, and there should also be some links there too for the various places they can order it online. So, I appreciate them taking the time to read it, and I hope they'll love it and spread the word about it. And where are some places where off-the-shelf listeners can find you or follow you on social media? I know you said you're on Facebook and Twitter. Are you yes. any place? Are those, you any, are probably my, those are my biggest ones right now just because I'm, I'm on writing deadline, so I try to, like you said, I'm busy, and one of the ways I can stay busy is not to over overdo it. Yeah. So the best places are my two forums right now, which are, are the uh, Facebook and the Twitter. I'm, I'm eventually going to set up a Pinterest page, and I'm going to have that featuring my characters and their likes and interests. So that's one of the things I'm working on. But right now, um, my Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash books by Stacy, and that's S-T-A-C-Y. And then you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com at S-H Adams. So my handle is S-H Adams. Okay, S-H Adams on Twitter, and you can also check her out on Facebook, or you can even do a search for Stacy Hawkins Adams in the search box at Facebook, and, and I'm sure that she will pull up. And then her website, again, is StacyAdamsHawkins.com. 
M-C-A-C-Y-A-D-A-M-S-H-A-W. Excuse me? It's Hawkins, Hawkins Adams. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, that's okay. <laughs> Thank you for no. That's the right thing. Thank you for correcting me. I must have did a typo on I'm, 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 on my um, when I was doing the research for this earlier. I did start with Stacy Hawkins Adams. S T A C Y H A W K I N S A D A M S dot com. And thank you for correcting me. I appreciate it because I want our listeners to have the right information. Thank you so much, Stacy, for being here with us. We only have seconds left. And thank you for our, to our off the shelf listeners for tuning in with us this Saturday. If you get a chance, go over online. It's free, and it's it's running internationally to promo day. If you just go put a, a search in in one of the search engines, Google or or any search engine that you use, Bing, and put in promo day, Joe Lenzel is hosting that. And that's today, May the 19th, all day. There are workshops. You can, uh, you can get marketing information. I have one on landing radio interviews. But there are others. There are other people who are going to be giving various workshops. You can go there all day and access that information completely for free. Again, May the nineteenth, Promo Day. Just do a search. Go in and 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 enjoy learning this this valuable information for free. As I always tell you, and I just thank you for being here with us. As I always tell you, you're so valuable, valuable, and so incredibly. Bless. We forget that sometimes, but we always are. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. See you back here next Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And please go support Stacy Hawkins Adams in her new book, Coming Home. It's in ebook and in print books. You can check it out at the bookstores. You can check it out at Amazon. You can check it out at Barnes & Noble, any online or offline book retailer. Thank you, Stacy. Bye you, for Denise. now. Bye for now. Stacey, I'll send you an email. Thanks. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.